Hi, my name is Valerie Schmidt, and I have the privilege of reading the scripture for today. It is Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 12, and it can be found on page 520 in the Pew Bibles. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for who am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is the word of God. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes is, relatively speaking, lesser known. Last week, we preached through the most familiar passage, the passage about the seasons of life. For everything, there is a season, turn, turn, turn. The turn, turn, turn part's not in Ecclesiastes, but (laughs) that's what makes it familiar. This week, we come to another passage that, that... Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, perhaps you've heard it before. Uh, This passage, or at least this part of the passage where it says two are better than one, and a a cord of three strands is not quickly broken, we often hear that passage at weddings, not the part about it's better to be dead than alive. (laughs) That, That part's not in weddings so much. But we hear the two are better than one, and a cord is three strands, not quickly broken. And, and it's not wrong that that passage shows up at weddings. It's not wrong, but this passage actually means more than we've given it credit for. So let's pray as we study it together. Heavenly Father, we weren't wrong when we prayed and sang that you deserve it all. The highest praise to you alone deserve glory. And yet, we're aware that's not how we live, that's not what we give you moment by moment. 
And so out of your grace, would you, would you come and show yourself strong through the preaching of your word? Would you, would you draw near to us, though we don't deserve it, though we don't give you the highest praise, though we, even if we want to, because of your goodness and kindness and love, would you begin to shape us into the people you desire us to be? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This week for me was a doozy. Um, I felt as though I were living at moments the, the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I mean that in some good ways, but, but mainly in the challenging ways. Uh, to be more specific, I will say the, the challenge from last week's passage in a strange and unexpected way, had a way of bringing me to what I'll call the hope of this week's passage. Last week we talked about God's sovereignty over the seasons and our need to live humbly before them and before Him. To use the words from last week's passage, you and I, generally speaking, we we want a time to laugh and a time to dance, a time for healing and health and a time for peace. We want those kinds of times, but we learned you don't get to pick your seasons. You don't go through the buffet and just kind of curate the plate of life that you would like most, the exact seasons, the way you would like them. Instead, the seasons are dictated to us, and this can be harsh, but we also saw that the way that, that, that God in, in His sovereignty and His goodness is, as the passage said, making all things beautiful in its time. Now that all sounds nice, and it is, but my week was ugly. <laughs> Ecclesiastes talks about life under the sun, and I had a week where I was under the weather under the sun, <laughs> and it was not fun. I spent four days Now, they're far enough away from that, you don't have to be worried, but they were the beginning of the week, not feeling good, and it wasn't the kind of, I'm not feeling well, I'll just stay home and be super productive by myself. (laughs) It was like the kind of week where i like, I'm not doing anything. And when I tried to start to feel just a little bit better, I remember this moment, uh, we were sitting at the kitchen table, and and my wife asked me a question, and I'm looking at her (laughs) going... I know this is a very simple question, and you look so patient with me here. I can't answer your question. And I was like outside myself, watching myself, and then I went to, I was like, okay, I'll just go to the couch, I'll start studying Ecclesiastes. And it's hard enough when you feel well (laughs) to study Ecclesiastes, and when you're on cold medicine, that didn't help at all. So... Anyway, the week's piling up. My daughter had a huge event. I'd missed it. I had to watch it at home at TV. Um, so that happened. I helped coach a track and field team in the spring. I'm not there. Coaches or assistant coaches are figuring out if they did on their own without me. And then just for fun, I've been, I spent the last 18 weeks training for this nine-mile race. It's in the woods, up this mountain. It's silly. But we've been doing it. We've been trying to train for it. And then I get sick. <laughs> Um, and it's the second time, I'll be honest, that I've had some sickness, and so I am full of this week feeling, woe is me. <laughs> I'll keep going. First day back to work is Thursday, 15-hour day, and a few of you there with me there at the end. And 15-hour day starts before 8, ends after 10 o'clock. We had the search team for the job search process, all planned, all set up, 
and I feel awful, but I get there and we do it. By then I'm feeling better. But, um, and this whole week, the whole time, the week's getting longer and longer, and I just feel Sunday morning chirping. Your sermon, you should work on your sermon. You should work on your sermon, Ecclesiastes. You have to talk to people. So, uh, that, and I'm talking to you. And so that's what this week was like. You get the picture. I could keep going. Now, often when I preach, I try and bring you into some details of life to show you, yes, I'm also a real person. This week, I'm doing more of that. Um, okay, but yeah. So, so I'm doing more of that this week because, as I said, the, the challenge of last week's passage really, in a way I didn't expect, brought me to what I'll call the hope of this week's passage. Last week, we talked about God's sovereignty of the seasons and the need to live humility before them, and the challenging week I had put me in this season where it wasn't a time to laugh, it wasn't a time to dance, it wasn't a time to heal, it was a time to be torn down. And I didn't have a choice about that. God, God didn't ask me 18 weeks ago, hey, we're going to mess up one week here. What, where do you want me to put that? <laughs> like, I, I didn't give him permission. But I can still see, even in all of that, some ways, at least some of what God might be doing. Some, never all, but some. And some of what he might have been doing was bringing to me to a place, at least maybe more than I typically would have been, where I feel not only the challenge, but the hope. And the hope is this. Under the sun, two are better than one. Under the sun, two are better than one. There are so many ways our hearts can work against the gift that God has for us in thick community. The, the, the gift of a spiritual family that God has designed us for. There are so many ways that under the sun, meaningful, life-giving, helpful, and healing community can break down. And this passage that is Ecclesiastes 4 is about a lot of those ways that community breaks down. But it also offers us the hope that under the sun, two are better than one. So as we look at this passage, I want to, I want to do so in two sections here. We'll, we'll, in this first section, we're going to look at the, the four ways that we see community prevented or prohibited, perhaps, and then one encouragement to pursue community. So let me reread verses 1 to 3. So just leave Ecclesiastes 4 open if you have a Bible or looking at a phone or a tablet of some kind. Ecclesiastes 1 to 3, in chapter 4, the first preventer of community is oppression. The preacher writes, or preaches, we might say, that's his title for himself in this book. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed and how they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. And these are sad verses. 
they're bookended by that phrase, under the sun, which as we've said is the preacher's way of describing the world as it is, often. It's a way to describe the world without a view to any kind of happy ending. It's a way to describe the world without, in a sense, a view to God's goodness and his sovereignty. Life under the sun is often full of, he writes here, oppression. I have an app on my phone. It's just kind of native to the phone itself. It's not an app you add, but my computer also has one. If you click over by the weather, you want to see the weather, then also pops up all these headlines. It's this like constant feed of headlines, and I both love it in a sense, but also hate it. The stories of death and disease and violence and oppression are unthinkingly terrible and yet frequent. At this point, I'm, I'm writing the sermon. I was like, well, I'll just click over and see if there's an example. And I click over, and the top story, this is actually at the top, there's two. It's like two columns of the second column, the story. This is the headline. $1,000 reward offered in search of man accused of raping person with disabilities. That's local news. It's not national news. And I saw that and I thought, I'm not even going to scroll down to get a second example of oppression. Like, I think we're good. And the preacher in this passage laments not only the oppression that takes place, but that those who are oppressed have no one to comfort them. No one to wipe away their tears. If you follow news, and not just the kind of news I was talking about there, but if you follow news over the last few years, you'll know there's a lot of noise and discussion about oppression and oppressors and power and powerless and things like critical race theory, CRT, and terms like cultural Marxists and so on. And these terms get thrown around so quickly as though we all have this vast knowledge of these giant philosophies that people study and get PhDs in as though we had that same knowledge. And the reality, I fear, myself included, is that we only have a superficial knowledge of these things. And what I'm saying here, though, and what we're reading in Ecclesiastes, though, I, I, I don't want it to be taken as either support for some understanding of some of that or some critique of some of that. Just I, I want us to see the words for what they are, sort of without all of that noise for just a moment. I'm just saying that the preacher here, in all his wisdom, in all his wealth, is pointing out that under the sun, sometimes people who don't have all of that same wisdom and all of that same wealth get the shaft. And there's nothing that can be done about it. And his big point might even be that there's not even a whole lot he can do about it. Oppression under the sun, he, can, he says, makes meaningful community hard. And I'm slowing down here for a reason. We'll go more quickly on some of these other ones. But 
Some people see Solomon, or I'll say it this way, some people don't see Solomon as vitally connected to this book of Ecclesiastes as I'll say we do, or at least I do as I'm processing how to make sense of the book of Ecclesiastes. Some people don't think a king could have written some of these passages. They say that a king as powerful as Solomon could not have been connected to the preacher and this sermon that is Ecclesiastes because it wouldn't make sense. Hey preacher, you're the king. If you see all this oppression, just jump in and fix it. Make things better instead of worse. Do better. I don't buy that. I I, I think the preacher knows here there are things he can't fix. And not only can't he fix them, he's saying that the honest person knows that sometimes there's things that can't be fixed out there because the problem's also in here. I'll put it like this. I, I, I look around this church after 10 years and I just smile at times I see what God is doing, the way he's working, the people he's drawing here, the connections that are being formed, the community that's being built, a church that's being planted. Like, I, just, I just smile at what the Lord is doing among us. But I can also, after 10 years, look around this church and still see the ways we're not yet what we ought to be. And I'd love to blame that on you. (laughs) I'd love to. But I know better. Because I look at some of the things that I think, we are so bad at this still. And it's the exact same things at 41 years of age. I'm still so bad at. One of my favorite pastors of all times was in the same church for 33 years, and he said at one point, like, the, the blessing of being in one church over three decades is you can see all the wonderful things God does, and the, the curse of that, so to speak, is that you get to see reflected back all your weaknesses. I think that's what Solomon's saying here. So the first preventer of community is the oppression that might take place within it. Next comes envy. Look look with me at verse 4. The preacher writes, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. It's been windy the last few days, hasn't it? (laughs) Try and chase that. That's what he's saying. It's another happy verse, right? Another happy verse from Ecclesiastes. The the preacher here in his super wise, super wealthy vantage point of pursuing knowledge as far as it can be going, he he looks out and he has this to say about the world. He says that all skill, all musical ability, all writing skills, all math skills, all athletic skills, craftsmanship, sales, marketing, real estate, counselor skills, pastor skills, mothering skills, lawyer skills, teaching skills, all skills. He says, you know what, you know what makes people better at the skills that they do? It's because their heart envies skills. 
They want the skills that other people have, or they want the notoriety that comes with the skills that other people have, or they want the wealth that comes from the skills that other people have. And you might be thinking, okay, that's overstating things a bit. But is it? Is he not right in saying that one person wants to be good at video games and another person wants to be good at a business thing and another person wants a retirement thing, but behind so much of that desire, is there not a deeper desire to be better than somebody else? I mean, every musician who first learns that guitar, they can close their eyes and they're on the stage, right? Why do we have Guitar Hero as a video game, right? Like, what is that doing? What is that saying? Where does that come? It comes from here. And where this kind of envy exists in a community or a culture, it makes genuine community hard. It's hard to appreciate others when... You just want what they have. Look what goes on here in verse 5. The next preventer of community he writes about is laziness. Short verse, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. This is strange, I admit. Strange. It's a metaphor, though. The, the, The lazy person here called the fool is so unwilling to work and labor and to think about the needs of others. He's so consumed with his own wants and needs and desires, and he's so unwilling to do anything even productive to achieve those ends that in the end, the community gets tired of feeding him. And the only thing a lazy person can do is, Solomon writes, eat his own flesh. It's a way to say that not only is being lazy a drain on the community, but in the end it's self-defeating. And the church, I'll tell you, is not insulated from this. Sometimes it harbors this. It's real. The final preventer to meaningful community, the preacher works at or looks at the workaholic. Look with me at verses 6 through 8. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never even asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. The image here is of someone so laser-focused on getting ahead, so busy accumulating stuff, so busy getting wealth and titles and degrees and awards and applause that they don't even stop to consider that they don't even have anybody to share it with. And frankly, they've become the type of person that even if they did want to share it with others, no one's going to want to share it with them. 
Most people would rather go to Taco Bell with a friend than eat an $80 steak and drink fine wine with someone who only cares about themselves. I know a woman who years ago, as she started a career, worked at this company where there was this corporate management program, and after a year looked around and thought, all the people here are just a bunch of divorce suits. Now, there's an encouragement coming here in Ecclesiastes, all right, the part that we read at weddings, and we'll get there in a moment, but, but, but I just first have to ask here, do we just, is Ecclesiastes is holding up the mirror to us on who we are when we really see ourselves? It's asking us to consider if, if, if we, where we feel challenged in these four areas. We were to ask your parents or your family or your spouse, if you're married or your friends or coworkers or teammates, like where would they say you were most inclined to be preventing community rather than building it? Maybe it's using power to get your way. Maybe you're inclined to be jealous of others constantly manicuring your appearance, or you're coming across the right way to the right people. Maybe it's being lazy. Maybe you've got your head down just grinding so hard that you don't have time for other people. If any of those are your present reality, God loves you so much. He loves you so much. He has something better for you, better for us, better for this world. Remember this line we've been using here in Ecclesiastes. The the preacher is lowering our expectations about at least some parts of life so that he might save them, our expectations, and, and save us. And in chapter 4, he, he, he's been building through the, the, these arguments about the deep meanings of life. And it's like in chapter 4, he does this just a couple times here and then later in the book. We probably won't cover all of those. But, but, but here in chapter 4, he, he pulls back from that kind of big philosophical questions. And he's just going to give practical advice about how to live under the sun. He's saying meaningful, thick, spiritual community. It, it, it won't help keep our sandcastles from washing away under the sun. But under the sun, he says, it's a lot better to follow God with people. Under the sun, two Christians are better than one. In fact, that was always God's intention for the world. And he's preparing us for a world where life under the sun will be the way it was always meant to be. And that life, that world will be full of people who are interesting and fascinating and redeemed and bask in God's brilliance. Look with me at verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone. This is hearkening back to oppression at the beginning of the chapter. Woe to him who is alone when he falls. 
and he has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. As I said, we often hear those words at weddings, and, and that's not wrong, but, but the application is too narrow. There's another passage we often hear at weddings that certainly relates to marriages, but likewise, I would say, is also too narrow. Think with me about Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in the story of Adam, and then, of course, later Eve. But in chapter 1, God made everything, and, and over and over again, he calls what he made, what does he call it? He calls it good. It was good. It was good. It was good. And then finally, at the end, he calls it very good. And then God says something is not good. Mark this, before sin entered the world, there was God. And along with God, there was man in a garden. It was beautiful. 72 degrees, I assume, not 25, right? It's it's beautiful. And and fruit, as far as the eyes can see, meaningful work to be done. No thorns and thistles yet. No spam emails, right? No, like, just substance and meaning and beauty. And God says it's not good that the man should be alone. Even there in paradise. Now again, we often consider this as something about marriage, and certainly it speaks to marriage, but I believe the statement is much broader. We were made for thick, meaningful, spiritual community. If you go to our church cafe, just kind of right down through the hall there, you'll see the canvases, the three of them that are one art piece, that say community. God designed us for it. Now, I'm self-aware that there's a bit of a joke going on there because our church is named Community, and I'm not so egotistical to think that God designed you for Community Church, right? Except I kind of think that's true in the sense that God designed people for a specific community, at least for specific community at specific seasons. Just like he designed people for Living Water Church and Susquehanna Valley Free Church and Second City Church and Grace Bible Fellowship and then Midtown Church, other good churches. Under the sun, two are better than one, he says. There is a kind of protection and, as he says, a kind of warmth that comes from being around others. I've been camping before and it does sometimes, depends where you're camping, of course, but it can get cold. And there are times the person next to you is much warmer than the outside wall of that nylon tent. And here the preacher writing in ancient Israel knew something about the danger of deserts. Traveling alone was dangerous and you could be attacked. You might freeze at night. Two are better than one and a cord of three strands is not easily broken. It's not a line about marriage. It's a line about thick, meaningful community. Consider that line in that passage there about falling into a pit. You know, the thing about pits is that if you fall into them, it's probably not because you saw it, right? 
No one is like, oh, look at that pit with the lion and the shards of glass and the spikes. I'll just go sit over here on the edge and pet this lion, right? Like, no one's doing that with a pit. And the preacher's point is that when hard times come, when the seasons come, when it's a time to mourn, a time to cry, a time to be torn apart, even a time to die, you're going to want people around you and with you in those moments because your wealth won't save you, your power won't save you, your skills that you've acquired probably won't save you, your work ethic won't save you from stage four cancer. You're going to need thick, meaningful community around you. And you need to cultivate that before you stumble into the pit. That's his point. And so just make it real here. We'll just make it real. So we're already here. Might as, well, might as well go all the way. In the last five years, do you feel like the community around you has gotten thicker and more meaningful? more life-giving? Or do you feel like the community around you has gotten thinner and more superficial? Do you feel like you have more people around you saying, I see you falling into a pit, or I see where you could be. People who could say that sort of thing to you say, I see this danger in your life, and I'm concerned for you. Or do you have less people in your life who would be that kind of friend? And if the answer is no, then the question is why? Is it because life circumstances out of your control have made it so? That, that might be true. There's a way in which career and family and caring for parents who might be aging can make our life meaningful but small in some ways. And that's not necessarily wrong or bad. Again, it might be beautiful. It might be the season that God has you in. But, and yet, as you think about statistics and the culture and just even probably your own life, the friends you had when you were in your 20s aren't who you were as many when you're in your 40s and even when you're in your 60s. That's the trend outside the church. And I'm just asking the question, should that also be in parallel for those in the church? Or should we have something bigger, different, more radical, something more wonderful to offer this world? A kind of community that's thick and meaningful and life-giving, where two are better than one. Which brings me back to where I started. I, I had this doozy of a week. I had no choice but I, I took a back seat on 10 things I wanted to lead. As I said, it was the challenge of last week about seasons, but it also, in a way I did not expect, brought me to the hope of this passage. Thick community that's been hard won here over years. We had some critical steps in the job search process take place this week, and Scott Elder, volunteer pastor at our church, works full-time job, family, loves his family, volunteers at things, and is solving all the challenges and the problems in the wee hours of the night, just leading like a champ. 
creating agendas, communicating, making phone calls, setting things up, leading that whole search team, and then the whole search team just thinking and coming together and working this five-hour shift like a champ. There was the track team. I couldn't go to practice. Assistant coaches, take over. Things here at the church, other pastors, other staff, take over, run it well. And round about the middle of the week where I was just thinking, I I don't know if I'm going to get to Sunday if this doesn't get better. Tuesday, Wednesday, I was like, I just got to start texting people. (laughs) Would you pray for me? And I had five or six friends. Could send that text immediately. This comes back, yeah, I'll pray. Yeah, I'll pray. I could have done that for dozens of people, though. In fact, could have emailed the whole church. I have every, every email of the church in my phone, which is kind of sweet part of being the pastor here. Um, you may not have that same ability, but, but that was my point. I was just so thankful. Just so thankful. The other week, I read an article titled, You Can't Make Old Friends. You can make friends, and by the grace of God, that one day they might become old friends. That's why the gospel message is so important. As the preacher of Ecclesiastes looks around, and I will tell you, as this preacher looks around, I think the problems here are too great for any kind of man-sized solutions, we would say. Human-sized solutions. The, the, the challenges to community under the sun are so big that we need the God-sized solution of the gospel. When Jesus lived on earth, he deserved, as we sang earlier, he deserved everyone everywhere to follow in allegiance and loyalty to him, to, to, to be loyal servants. That's what Jesus deserved then and deserves now, servants. Remember what Jesus calls his disciples, though? John 15, we read of Jesus having a meal with them. And he says, quote, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I've made known to you. He's, he's brought us in. And after that meal, he died for his friends to purchase forgiveness for him. Then he rose and ascended to heaven. And from heaven, he he sends this gospel message and he sends the Holy Spirit to actually change people. And not just to change individual people, but to change individual people within a community and to make a spiritual family with brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And one day, the friend we have in Jesus through faith will become sight. And the world will be the community he designed it to be. And until that day, we have work to do. Let me pray and invite the worship team to come and close us in songs. Would you pray? Heavenly Father, as we've said before, Ecclesiastes is strange medicine at times. Strange sayings from a wise man that almost feels like a madman at times. And yet, he loved the people he was pastoring. 
And you inspired him, Lord, to write words that we would need, that your people would need to become the kind of people you desire us to be. Lord, we thank you for the good news story of Jesus. As I think about our fractured, polarized world, oh, do we need more of him. Lord, would you show yourself strong in the way you save us and change us and make us not only into individuals who follow you well, but a community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.